Hi friends, my name is Hunter, and I'm joined today, as I have been every week for the past two years. How long have you been doing this fucking thing? Yeah, about two years. Jesus Christ. Uh, I'm gonna, we're not going to do this episode today, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Hunter. Your name is what? No, it's Hugh. Okay. How do you spell that? H for Harry. Uh-huh. A for Andrew. Mm. No, that's not true. <laughs> I started, I said H for Harry and then I started, then I proceeded to spell Harry. Um, H for Harry. Mm. U for uh, uvula. G for Gary, mm. and H for Harry, again. Okay, whatever. So, um... So, guys, on this podcast, what do we do? No, okay. Uh, so, uh... <clears throat> let me take that again. So, this podcast is called Project A+. That's right. And on it, every week we cover at least three different films. One of them is typically a new or new-ish release. Mm-hmm. And then two sort of classics joined by some theme or whatever. Yeah. So first we tap into the zeitgeist, and then we tap into the archives. This week, as was last week, and then not for the next three weeks, we have been doing a project on sort of infamously critically reviled films by... Directors who are generally acclaimed, I think, is a yes. good way. Turkeys by Masters. Um, and on this week, uh, we're diving into the next two films in this project, which are Clint Eastwood's The 1570 to Paris and John Carpenter's Ghosts of Mars. Mm. And for the main feature this week, we are tackling sort of another old master's newest work, which is Martin Scorsese's The Irishman. Is that a good impression of Scorsese? Perfect. I'm Martin Scorsese. Hey. Hey, guys. I restored the old movies. <laughs> okay, so um, let's jump right into it. And by it, I mean into the three segments which open the show every week and will always open the show every week, which are Armor of the Gods. Armor of Gods. Armor of the Gods. Armor of Gods. Wheels on Reels. Meals on Reels. Reels on Meals. Reels on Meals. And finally, Air Diaries. Correct. Let's hop on into it. Let's, let's join the action. How does that sound to you? Mm-hmm. What you wear on your body. Tell me about the armor.
So, um, Hugh, let's, uh, what, what have you been, um, what are you wearing right now? Is it your standard uniform? No. Wow. So the pants I'm wearing are navy blue sort of skinny chinos mm. that are a little bit too big for me, so I just wear them about the house. Too big in the uh, crotch area, I assume. Way too big in the crotch mm. area. That's a shame. It makes the assumption that I require any room whatsoever there. When really you're sort of a flat bump. Exactly. Smooth around the bend, as they say on Lex. Mm. And I'm wearing some grey socks with blue stripes. Mm. Horizontal blue stripes. Exciting. I'm wearing a t-shirt, and the colour of it I can only describe as a sort of pastel version of swamp green. Mm. It comes from the, the colour palette... Uh, that my ex-girlfriend affectionately named Vacuum Cleaner Lint because that was the type of colours I would uh, gravitate towards in my t-shirts. Uh-huh. And over the top of that, I'm wearing the same darker green shirt that I have worn on previous weeks. Mm. But uh, that is my outfit today. How about you, sir? Uh, well, Hugh, I have officially um, given into the... Uh worst angels of my existence mm-hmm. and I, I recently acquired some new clothing i'm currently wearing a sort of um dark green jacket that has on the sleeves uh drawings of rose petals okay mm-hmm. in the back uh has a um nearly naked woman uh, in sort of an anime-ish style Wow. Uh, That's covered in rose petals with her arms uh, over top her breasts. Uh, That's the jacket I'm wearing right now. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Then underneath that, I am wearing a um, dark blue uh, sweatshirt um, that is imprinted with a... uh, got two sort of dominant images one is of a um close-up of a anime style <laughs> woman's face <laughs> um, mm-hmm. uh, superimposed over which is a picture of a uh, another anime style woman uh, dressed in sort of a fetish nurse gear um holding a pair of scissors in one hand and a uh, needle on the other mm-hmm <laughs> uh, I should hasten to mention that this uh, sweatshirt is glo- it glows in the dark. Okay. Um, and then I'm wearing uh, sort of red or coralish pants. Hmm. Uh, and I have socks on that are gray around the ankle, and then are pink with blue spots, and then gray with blue spots. And then pink with blue spots again, but they're two different shades of blue. And then the tips where the toes are is dark blue. And that's the outfit that I've chosen to wear today. Where did you acquire these uh, anime-themed items? Uh, I got them both from a website called Omo Cats. And what is the reaction of the two women you live with? Uh, they seemed fine with both of them. Because unlike you, Hugh, they're not uh, prudish and racist, so... Okay. Are these, like, just generic anime figures, or are they related to a particular franchise? Uh, they're not related to a specific franchise. 
You're just like, she's hot. I want to wear her. Yeah, it's when I have something that I can quickly quickly whip off and masturbate to real quick. Take off your jacket and jacket. Yeah, exactly. Always be prepared, as the scouts say. I was a Boy Scout. Were you? I was, for several years. Wow. And I was always prepared. Um, how was the anime convention you went to a few weeks ago? That was great. I bought some other anime-themed clothing there. Uh, so you know I have nothing but anime-themed clothing. And then you'll be sorry. So I look forward to future segments of Armor of Gods. Yeah. Next week I'm hoping that every single item of clothing you wear mm. has an anime theme. Fortunately I did not have any anime-themed pants nor socks, so... But that can change. You have an entire week to get on top of this project. That's true. I'm not going to meet it, though, so sorry. But one day, one day, can we at least hold out hope that it will happen one day? Oh, yeah, yeah. One day I'll get that experimental surgery to make me into an anime girl, and then... Okay. I won't even have to wear anything outside the dorm. Uh, all right, let's move on. Reels on 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 reels in my stomach as we speak, uh, my uh, insides are processing some toast, mm. which is not a great surprise, but what did I spread upon this toast before I consumed it? I don't know. I'll, I'll give you uh, a hint. Mm. There is generic spread on it. So far the same. Mm-hmm. And? And what else do you think I spread on my toast? Uh, some fucking yeast extract garbage. No, nothing else. Just generic spread. I had my toast Japanese style. That sounds gross. Because toast is kind of a novelty item in Japan to some extent. And they have quite interesting bread that holds up to this type of treatment quite well. Mm. And a, a breakfast I was very fond of when I was in Japan was just ordering toast and it just came plain and buttered, often with a salad or something, and coffee. Mm. Really liked that breakfast. And with good bread, you can do that. This was not good bread, but still, I did that, just so I could say something different for the podcast. I didn't have any particular desire to do this. But anyway, Gross. what have you consumed today? I also had coffee. What have you consumed today? Well, Hugh, I've had quite a culinary adventure today. Wow. I know. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. So, Hugh, I woke up out of bed this morning, threw on, went to the shower, threw on the kettle, made myself a cup of coffee. What did I use that cup of coffee to wash down, do you think? Um, toothpaste? Nope. Then I'm out of ideas. Uh, well, Hugh, I had some cornflakes. Wow, some dry cornflakes. Yep, dry cornflakes. Delicious. Disgusting. Doesn't it, like, chew up your gums? Um, not really. Okay. I'm sorry that, um, you know, you like soggy garbage. You're sorry that I consume cereal in the manner in which it was designed to be consumed? No. It doesn't designed. What does designed mean? What does designed mean? Yeah, I pull up a definition in the dictionary. All right. Uh, and while you're doing that, I'll tell you what else I've had to eat today. So for my lunch, if you can call it that, I had some muesli. Planned or conceived in detail or for a specific purpose? Yeah, I don't, I don't think that fits cornflakes. 
I think it does. I don't think so. But um, so I had some muesli with some Icelandic yogurt product. Fucking wanko. I know. Uh, and I ate that. And then I had a kind bar, which is sort of a nut bar. Mm. And then I ate that. And then what did I eat? I don't know. What did I eat here? Toothpaste? What did I eat? I can't remember. I can't remember. You can't remember? You don't keep a log for the podcast? Then I took a break. Uh Uh-huh. And after that break, I had my dinner, which was composed of... What was it composed of, you? Uh, Chicken nuggets. Nope. Uh, It was... Have you... You go on the internet, right, you? I do. Have you heard of uh, Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen? I have. Popeye's Chicken. Yeah. So, Hugh, there's been a bit of a thing about a new product by Popeye's, their chicken sandwich, which they launched, um, they launched in competition with Chick-fil-A. They launched on a Sunday because Chick-fil-A is closed on Sundays. That's true. But who knows if that'll uh, continue to be true. So, I finally picked up a... What did I pick up, you? Chicken burger. I... Picked up their chicken sandwich, which they wanted uh, to competition. So they had never offered a chicken sandwich previously. No. It was just fried chicken in uh, a bucket or something. I quite liked Popeye's fried chicken. It's It's got a nice spice to it. It's tasty. Mm-hmm. It's good stuff. And I decided to try their chicken sandwich because, you know, it's gotten a lot of love on the internet. And I must say, it was okay. It was not as good as Chick-fil-A's chicken sandwich, which is delicious. This isn't just my Southern pride talking. But Chick-fil-A famously is uh, anti-LGBT. No, no, Hugh. They, they, well, they decided, to, they they decided to... Yeah, so now I can eat my Chick-fil-A guilt-free. Yeah. There's <laughs> literally no reason for me to eat that Popeye's chicken sandwich ever again. Because <laughs> while it was fine, when I was eating, I couldn't help but think about how much better the Chick-fil-A sandwich is. Mm. So um, that, was a, that was a flaw in their logic. Uh, and as a side of that, I had some Cajun fries, the nice tall paper cup filled with Dr. Pepper. And you, that's not, that's not it though. That's not all I ate. So I had my dinner pretty early because I had my lunch pretty early too. And before we started recording, uh, I felt a little peckish and decided to dip into some leftovers. Okay. Mm. And last night for dinner, I made for myself and my roommate and my girlfriend. A orange mint and halloumi salad. <laughs> you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. Um, this weird gag reflex all of a sudden for some inexplicable reason. And so, which consisted of, you know, some orange wedges, okay? <laughs> some mint, uh, you know, chopped up. And can I guess, wait, wait, some halloumi? Yeah, yep, some halloumi. Uh, also some arugula, some uh, red wine, some walnuts. Some red wine just splashed in there. Red wine, red wine vinegar. Wine vinegar. <laughs> red wine vinegar. Okay, good. That's it. <laughs> and then some olive oil, some pepper. It was delicious. Was it though? Yeah. I mean, the oranges were a little sour because it's not really their season. Uh, that's that's what I ate. Uh, right now I'm drinking a... Well, I just finished it. A blood orange wine spritz. What the fuck? <laughs> so you're a spritz guy. I like uh, uh, blood orange flavor quite a bit. So 
I hate all sweet versions of alcohol. I only like sweet versions of alcohol. Mm. So, sorry. Tell me about the weather where you are. What's the air like in your diary, Hugh? From memory, it was uh, forecast to be 21 degrees Celsius today. I, of course, will quickly translate that for you. Mm. Should have prepared this earlier. Uh, so 21 degrees Celsius translates to 69.8 degrees Fahrenheit. Fairly still, overcast. Seems like my kind of weather, to be honest. Mm. Haven't been outside. Actually, I did go outside briefly to water the garden, like a dutiful tenant. And, uh, yeah, looks all right. You'll probably, you'd probably be all right with a, a light jacket. If that, probably okay with a shirt. Or this shirt off. You'd probably be okay either way. Have a good time outside in Melbourne. Get that shirt off. Might be some rain, you know, a bit later, but nothing nothing serious. Please continue. Maybe go to the city where there's a lot of uh, shelter at street level. Don't just, like, wander around the suburbs or something where there's less shelter. So. Yeah, because obviously Melbourne, a very dangerous place, right? I wasn't speaking to the level of danger in Melbourne. I was speaking to you're suggesting from rain. people walk around on the streets, and I, I think you need to. I need to warn them that Melbourne's a dangerous place. Yeah. Or you could get knifed at any time. So you should uh, pack your umbrella and your machete. What's it like in uh, old New York? Right at this very moment, it is. 34 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 1.11 degrees Celsius. Wow. Chilly. So pretty chilly. Uh, It was was kind of a strange day. Yesterday, the entire day, it snowed pretty much. Not fun snow. It was pretty gross snow, unfortunately. So like the the titular whistleblower, you were snowed in. What? Keep going. I don't, I don't get that. I don't understand why you just said that. It's not really titular either, because his name is not Edward Whistleblower. <laughs> what are you talking about? Uh, so this is for the edit. You don't need to worry about it. <laughs> what it's good is stuff. this in reference to? Edward Snowden. Oh, well, we weren't snowed in. We weren't snowed in, so... It doesn't really matter. Yeah, I was does. stretching the logic a bit. Uh, so... Uh... Today was cursed weather, because not only was it really cold, it was also very windy... There's all sorts of gross ice on the ground. And the sun was out, and it was blindingly sunny. And additionally, it was super windy. So, it was bad. Cool. Was that the end of your spiel about the weather? It was. That's that's the... I'm closing... That was me closing the air diary. Moving on. Moving on. So, now we get to talk about... The Irishman. So The Irishman is a movie directed by uh, acclaimed American 
all tour director. Madden's crazy. That's the one. Uh, and it is the epic and sprawling story of Frank, quotation mark, the Irishman, quotation mark, Sheeran. <laughs> Played uh, in part by Robert De Niro, in part by Robert De Niro's <laughs> computer twin <laughs> at various stages of age. Uh, the movie is told in this flashback structure where it starts with, it's sort of interlocking flashbacks. The film starts with Frank in a retirement home, and he's talking to us on some one-off screen. Who knows? Uh, He tells us the story about uh, the time he drove mob boss Russell Buffalino uh, up from uh, Philadelphia to Detroit, sort of what, what was going on there. Um, and the movie sort of is threaded with these flashbacks and flash forwards to this starting point and then to this other sort of overarching narrative while they're driving to Detroit. And it jumps back to tell you Frank's involvement with the mob, uh, especially with the aforementioned Russell Buffalino, who's played by Joey Pesci, <laughs> Acla- acclaimed um, jazz musician Joe Pesci. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, also his increasing ties to um, the infamously disappeared Jimmy Hoffa, mm. uh, who is played by, just as Frank is played by two, two different actors, by Al Pacino and Al Pacino's digital clone. And, um, you know, some stuff happens. Um, well, his loyalties between the mob and... Jimmy Hoffa be divided and eventually reach a cracking point. Uh, shall we find out? Is that an adequate summary? <laughs> I mean, this is a film that has a long and complicated narrative, but I don't know if I need to, we need to say much more than that. No, no, that's fine. We should we should also say that Pesci is also de-aged mm. in this film. Um, so this movie has been controversial for a couple of reasons. One is this digital technology. The other is for the fact that it doesn't really have a, that much of a female voice in the narrative, intentionally, I think. Yeah, because he hates women. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, for reasons that we'll get into in a bit. Um, but, Hugh, uh, all these controversies bounce around in your head. I don't really care about them. What I care about is, what did you think of The Irishman? <laughs> And did you see it in the theater, or did you watch it on Netflix like a depraved loser? What do you think I did? I think you watched it on Netflix. Damn straight. <laughs> I saved myself $8 and a short walk down to the local cinema. So this film opens with a steady cam shot going down the corridor of this nursing home to the tune of In the Still of the Night by the Five Satins. It immediately recalls earlier Scorsese films, notably Goodfellas. And my reaction was just, Ugh, this is this is not going to be for me. My skepticism continued for the next hour or so, I'd say, as the film tracks Frank Sheeran's rise through the ranks of the mafia and uh, those fucking golden oldies needle drops show no signs of abating. <laughs> uh. Even acknowledging the fact that, that Sheeran is intentionally rendered as someone who is 
sort of very guarded and closed off and maybe situated at a remove from the audience. I think he's a pretty uninteresting character and I think De Niro's performance, mm. while solid, is not exactly compelling. Arguably by design. Yeah, that's what I would I would say. But it just felt like, God, I've seen this story so many times, I just I just don't care. I really don't care. But but I will say that when Pacino enters the picture as Hoffa and the film transitions into a sort of three-hander between De Niro, Pacino and a very restrained Joe Pesci, it really does click into gear. Even with my reservations about the early sections of the story, I have to credit Scorsese for managing the film's insane 209-minute running time as well as he does. Yeah. Like, I, for me, it had dull stretches, but it was never less than watchable, which is to say it's not a boring film, which is an achievement, I think. Mm. I, uh, I actually had a pretty good time by the end. I will happily say this is a good film. I don't think it's an unqualified success, and I wouldn't label it a masterpiece but it would be perverse of me to deny what this film does well. What did you think of it, sir, having watched the film twice? Um, let me think. Did I like this film, Hugh? The answer is yes. Though I did like you. I don't know if it's necessarily reservations per se, but I also found this film to be hard to get into the, for the first 30 or 40 minutes or so. Hmm. Um, but, uh, as soon as they introduced things, yeah, like, uh, Jimmy Hoffa, the introduction of him definitely, he's definitely a more active character than either Sheeran or Russell Buffalino are. And, you know, I think I, I mean, it's obviously like a deliberate choice to make them sort of, I mean, you know, there's, there's none, this is like the anti Goodfellas in a lot of ways, as he sort of like pointed to in that, that, um, that opening, uh, steady cam shot. Yes. Or your description of it anyway. Um, in that these gangsters, you know, are not glamorous. Um, every place they work and live in and have nostalgia for, it just seems like a grungy, boring place. And there's something I found very charming about that fact. I like how low rent the gangsters in this movie are, I have to say. Mm. Um, and the parts of it that really started getting my blood going were specifically the moments where it sort of turns into a James Elroy-esque true crime adjacent novel. Uh, James Elroy, of course, wrote uh, L.A. Confidential. It's probably his most famous book. Um, But he sort of specializes in this sort of very dark crime narrative that interweaves uh, historical personages and events uh, into... I don't know, sometimes stock and sometimes historical noir events. Mm. Uh, and often his films are about sort of this vast conspiracy of corruption, which this film is too, to some degree. Uh, and I thought those elements of it were incredibly enjoyable. <laughs> I mean, and, you know, this is based on a quote-unquote nonfiction book, but a lot of the claims that he made in real life have been debunked or... Refuted. Yeah, refuted, or have doubt cast upon them, including the, his slaying of Hoffa. Yeah, well, the primary source for the revelations in that book was Sheeran himself in a nursing home, so... Yes. Who knows? I think it's more interested in, in this as a story than as a historically accurate portrayal. Yeah, but I really enjoyed the part where <laughs> he sort of suggests that, you know, he was responsible for um, arming uh, the Bay of Pigs. <laughs> that, that was great. 
Mm. Uh, I really like the bits where the mafia rigs the election for JFK and then has him assassinated. <laughs> and that just hit all the pleasure centers in my brain. Uh, I also thought this film, you know, it, it did remind me a lot of a couple other films that have come out this year. Uh, and um, there's something sort of very depressing about this movie, I think. <laughs> Both in the sort of way it depicts just how, you know, um, terrible the lives of these people are, really. You know, there's no real refuge that they have, even in their, like, supposed brotherhood, that basically they all die, you know, in prison and alone, <laughs> right? Hmm. Um, and... Um, there was something about that uh, and the fact that, this, you know, there's not going to be too many more of these Scorsese movies, both because the model that allowed him to make films is sort of is in the process of dying, I think. And the fact that he himself is probably approaching the grave <laughs> and not too uh, long from this point. Like there's this feels like the end of a certain era of film. You know what I mean? Yes. And, um, you know, not that that era was perfect by any means, but uh, I think that the fact that what it seems to be being replaced by is just this sort of, you know, monopolized Disney model. uh, There's something pretty depressing about that fact to me, you know. And uh, ultimately, I thought the performances were perfectly calibrated. I think De Niro is, yeah, like you said, he's pretty subdued, but I think it's intentional, intentional. And I think that really comes through in the, you know, the end parts of the film. You know, where you sort of, there's the sense that this character wants to confront the terrible things that he does, but he doesn't really know how to go about it because he's so like, you know, I don't know, he's almost like a robot or something like that. (laughs) I thought that was really depressing. It does, it does make the moment in which he realized that he has to kill Jimmy Hoffa for uh, Buffalino and you can sort of see the tears well up in his eyes. It does make that, I think, all the more moving because he's been so subdued for the rest of the film. For the rest of the film, yeah. And also the, the the really fantastic scene where he's talking to Hoffa's wife on the phone and he's like stumbling over his words. Yes, that was amazing. I think that was the best bit of his performance. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I also really like the part where he's talking to his daughter, um, not not the Anna Paquin one, but his other daughter. I think his name is Dolores. The one with lines. Yes. <laughs> I mean, uh, Peggy has lines. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get it. but I mean, like she has more substantial lines. Yeah, I think. Um, I mean, she always that one scene, really. But the scene where he's like, "Oh, I want to apologize," but he doesn't know what to apologize for. I also thought that was very like sad. <laughs> you know, there's something just so I find very relatable about this like sort of grotesque, like masculine guy, just unable to connect with you know, knowing that he's done something terrible, that he's ruined all the relationships in his in his life, right? You know, just un- totally unable to to realize the the, the things that that he did, and, and only really being able to justify himself. You know, and there's something I found really moving about that, uh, and pathetic. Uh, and um, but you know, we you know when we're talking about this film, it's like we there's there's also a lot of like funny bits. I think, you know, hmm. like I really love the scene where uh, and, and this might be my favorite part of the entire film, where Buffalino you know, joins uh, the Sheeran family for Christmas. And he gives he gives Peggy a pair of skates, and um, you know the the point of her character is sort of as this. I mean, she sort of represents his, uh, Frank's like dead end emotional life, right? In a way, mm. um, because basically she doesn't talk to him at all in the film. And you know, Anna Paquin's lack of lines has been um, remarked upon uh, extensively. 
But uh, there's a great scene where she gets a pair of skates from Buffalino, who she always is cold to, and uh, says thank you. And then she, Buffalino's like, oh no, check in the next, you know, check in the packaging. There's like a hundred dollar bill. She doesn't say anything. And then Pesci just gives this great delivery of like, no, what one thinks is enough. It's okay. <laughs> Which I thought, I just thought was really incredible and really funny. It's sad too. I think from a screenplay perspective, I don't have a problem necessarily with what they've done with the Anna Paquin character. I think what, what has uh, opened this up to criticism is the fact that Anna Paquin was cast in that role. Mm. It seems like relatively high-profile casting for the actual substance of her role in the film. She has more of a symbolic substance where that doesn't really leave much room for performance. But her, I think her performance is really good too. I mean, it's fine. It's okay. But like, it's not. It's nothing different from what the little girl was doing, who was also fine in that role. I mean, I, I guess I. But she's also good. Like, there's a lot of a lot of I don't know depth in the expressions that she's giving. You know what I mean? Mm. Okay, I don't think, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, we talked about this in part when we talked about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I think that kind of misses the point in terms of like, characterization, like just simply being like, oh, she doesn't have that many lines, so therefore, you know, she's a bad character. Yeah, I, I agree with that. But I, I think that's the reason why people have been like, huh, why, why is she in this if she doesn't get to do anything? But she serves a symbolic function, right? Which is, which is, is sort of problematic in its own way, you know, but um, not in the way that people are saying. No, no. But I think that uh, the way that the role works, works well, you know. So I'm going to um, push back a little bit on what you said about this being maybe like the anti-Goodfellas or something like that. Mm. Because, like, I do think that in his search for Jimmy Hoffa, Scorsese turns up a lot of old ground. And uh, not just the ground of Giants Stadium. Zing. Uh. everyone's older and there's this pall of mortality and regret that I think is more pronounced than some of his earlier films. Yeah. But the ultimate trajectory of say De Niro's character Mm. isn't exactly like revelatory. Like his life of crime has cost him a meaningful connection with his family. He was forced to betray his friends and he's left running away in his nursing home completely alone, but for his regrets or whatever Mm. that, that type of thing is built into the genre of this type of, gangster film and I don't think yeah but they're all older now and Scorsese's about to die makes it that much more noteworthy in terms of going against a tradition or anything like that because I think Goodfellas functioned that way even the glamour was offset by the end of the film right I mean I guess so but I think the approach that he's taking is different right yeah I think I think I think there is a, a more sedate quality to the way this film unfolds that's that's more what I mean then like the 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 point of like Goodfellas and Casino, I mean, not the point, but the the way that those films function is by sort of critiquing from within, right? And same with like The Wolf of Wall Street, where they 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 sort of seduce you into into accepting this life, and then and then shock you out of it with like punctuations of violence or moral, like you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this film sort of it almost it almost feels like an apology uh, for that in a way. Mm. There's really nothing glamorous about this film, and the, and the violence in it is not. <clears throat> It's not like um, fetishized or or exciting at all, really. No, that's true. It's very drab. It's sort of like um, it's just sort of grim. It kind of, it almost kind of reminded me of, especially there's a sequence where that sort of um, sets the arc with his daughter into motion, where he um, curb stomps a grocer who had pushed her or something like that. And that actually kind of, it kind of reminded me of Cure, actually. Hmm. 
just the way that it's, it's specifically framed where the camera's like sort of stationary outside of it, right? It definitely it definitely doesn't like um the the shot doesn't last as long as the as the deaths in cure do. But I think it has that same sort of unsettling quality where it's just presented in this like sort of naturalistic way where it doesn't feel like I don't know, like there's nothing like really stylized about it, you know? It's just very like brutal. I watched one of those little featurettes that uh, Netflix provided for this film. And Scorsese said that a part of his strategy was really to get out of the way of the characters because that's where the heart of the film lies and the performances. Yeah. Like, he doesn't elaborate much further in the featurette, but I I took that as meaning that he shies away from any tricks or show-stopping director moves so that the focus really is on the characters and actors. Yeah. And it's certainly true that visually... There's not a lot about this film that lingers past its credits. No. And at times it feels almost prosaic, but I do think there's a case to be made for that restrained approach suiting the themes of this film. Yeah, for sure. It's not workmanlike. I wouldn't go that far, but yeah, yeah no. there's parts of it that feel very sort of stripped back and restrained. It definitely feels sedate, yeah. But I think that's sort of, yeah, it is fitting this character who that the film is like centered around. You know, he's like not, he's just like sort of the stolid, like, I mean, he's like a working class guy, you know, <laughs> and like, he's sort of, you know, this sort of like generic, like, you know, he's totally closed off from his emotions and just is, does, does what he's told. Like there's a, there's a sequence that, which probably has the least convincing, you know, uh, <laughs> De Niro, I think. The, the World War Two flashback. Yeah, the flashback to World War Two. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> what do you think of the de-aging? Because I, I... I don't know, like, at first I was like, this is, like, terrible, but um, in both times I've watched it, at a certain point I just couldn't tell anymore, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, well, that's because they're, they're slowly reducing the fader on De Niro. <laughs> yeah. So that he becomes more and more De Niro. And the, the, good, the one good thing is as the story improves, the mm. effect becomes less distracting because the characters are actually aging. Yeah, that's true. So by the end, like, it doesn't matter anymore because, you know, it's, it's no longer really there. Mm. But I, I, I don't think that we should excuse the CGI as a, a lot of critics I've read have done. Mm. And, like, it's cute to say that it fits the artificiality of memory and nostalgia, um, especially as it's most glaring in the scenes of Sheeran's early rise to power and the World War II flashback when he's a much younger man. And, you know, this is all being recounted by a senile wise guy in a nursing home. Maybe his memory looks like shitty CGI. <laughs> if, if that's the cost that you have to pay to get, you know, De Niro to play the same character in the entire It's not, though. That's the not film. the cost. I think this is, a, this is a, a hugely costly proof of concept venture in a relatively new technology. And it's probably the first time it's been used uh, in a non-fantastical film made for adults. I'm trying, to right. think of, I'm trying to think of any other examples. Benjamin Button was the most sophisticated previous example I could think of, but that's fantastical. Um, uh, Gemini Man. It's a separate technology. That was an entire CG creation. This is not. Okay. Whatever. Anyway, but I, I think we should call out the fact that the way this technology is employed in this film it represents a failure, even if it doesn't kill the film. I don't know if I agree that it's a it's a failure. I think this film would be improved by just using makeup and hair dye. Cause <laughs> I kind of love the idea of them. They weren't that young when the principal scenes are occurring, with the exception of the World War II scene. It is interesting that they don't... The, the versions of De Niro that they cast, they make, are they don't look like De Niro looked like when he was that age. <laughs> yeah, but that's because the size, the shape of his face has aged. 
So you're changing like the features of his face, but sticking them in this weird sort of fat old De Niro head, mm. right? So it looks weird. It looks off. I mean, it, I, 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 to be honest, like it didn't really distract you that much. It didn't really take me out of the film. On the featurette that I mentioned earlier, Scorsese does make a valid point that, you know, what's being done here is not dissimilar to just using aging makeup. Yeah, because it's distracting in its own way. Yeah, well, even, yeah, even when that wasn't convincing, like, the audience is conditioned to accept it without too much trouble. So what's the difference here, you know? But it just seems like such a waste of resources to me. Like, even if they got this perfect... I don't think that's where you should put your resources. Apparently, this isn't even the first time that De Niro has been de-aged. Wow. Apparently, he was de-aged in the film Grudge Match. Do you remember Grudge Match, you? I do not. It was a boxing comedy film with De Niro and Stallone. Jesus. Yeah, <laughs> 2013. <laughs> Which apparently featured some de-aging. So. I think, th- I think the problem is, even when it's not that distracting and it's only some of the film that, that is really the most glaring, I don't, I don't want to think of a video game cutscene when I'm watching a movie that is otherwise so far removed from that world, you know? It stands out less amid the nonsense of a Marvel movie. Mm. But here, it really does leave an unpleasant aftertaste. I think if I liked the film more than I do, I'd be more angry about it. Mm. Because I don't want that aftertaste spoiling the the meal you know i don't want this very classical film by an aging auteur to feel like a a tech demo even momentarily but still like it doesn't it definitely doesn't ruin the film i guess i'm just for the advancement of cinema and you're just a luddite who wants to see everything stay the same that's exactly right you're you're the conservative i'm i'm the uh cutting age liberal when you said this film reminded you of a couple of other films released this year, was one of them Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Yes. Yeah, because I thought the same, and not just because of the, the Margot Robbie v. Anna Paquin type thing. Mm. No, but it, it does have a similar sort of, you know, closing of an era vibe, I think. There's a melancholy in both films. Indeed. Both films, I'm reasonably confident in saying, have been described as elegiac by multiple critics. Sure. You know, like a filmmaker reflecting on their own legacy. And with Scorsese, it's as he's approaching the end of his life. Mm. And with the much younger Tarantino, he's approaching the end of his filmmaking career, the self-imposed end. Yeah, but it also feels like both films are sort of a sunset on a specific way of making movies too. Yes. Which is like big budget auteur films, which is probably not going to end necessarily, but is definitely going to get stripped back in the future, which is a shame, I think. But where Once Upon a Time in Hollywood's supposed maturity felt more like a front, at least to me, mm. I think the Irishman's mournful tone feels earned. I mean, I, I really love Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, so I don't really... I think they both feel earned, so... And the other thing I want to say, returning to the point I made earlier, that I don't think it's treading that much new ground, I will say there is freshness here amid the familiar, and I have to give a lot of credit to Pacino. I think he's legitimately great in the role of Jimmy Hoffa. Yeah, so do I. I think he, I think he's like it's the best he's been in. I don't know how many years, twenty years. I know, like latter day Pacino performances frequently tip over into self parody. Yeah, and he, he's not that at all in this. No, like here his tendency towards outsized gestures fits the the personality of Jimmy Hoffa, who was an outsized figure. And it, I think I, well, at least my favorite scene of his. I mean, there, he has so many great ones, but there's a great scene where he's like. Um, shouting at all these collected board members. <laughs> that was hilarious. Where it seems like he's, like, forgotten his lines or something, you know? It's a great scene. 
And I also think Scorsese extracts a lot of subtlety and nuance from Pacino. Mm, for sure. It's not only an impressive performance, it's it's quite a moving one, I think. Yeah. And I think I think also, not to go back to this, but the de-aging on him is the one that you don't ever know. Oh, I didn't really notice it on Pesci either, so... I noticed, like, Pesci gets away with it the best, I think. I noticed it on Pacino in some scenes. Mm, I, 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 really, I really didn't notice it all, at all on Pacino. But, yeah, like, it's less pronounced, I think. Yeah. Because he doesn't actually look that old now if he shaved off his beard. Sure. And dyed his hair. I mean, Al Pacino's uh, uh, 79 years old right now. Wow. I know. He looked okay on the featurette. I mean, their the frame is quite frail. Like, that's the, the biggest telltale. But facially, they don't look that old. Mm. Well, they're, they're, they're rich actors. That's right. Uh, Jimmy Hoffa was 62 when he vanished, so. But, yeah, this sort of returns to an early point as well. But I think with um, Jimmy Hoffa and Russell Buffalino, mm. both in terms of how they're conceived as characters and how Pacino and Pesci play them, we do have something that feels fresh from Scorsese in this world. They do feel like different types of characters. And then, you know, Sheeran, as the go-between, feels like a legacy character, sort of being pulled by these two forces. Well, well yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I kind of disagree. Because all the actors, I guess Pacino is kind of playing a variation on, on the sort of outside role, outsized role that he typically plays. But both Pesci and De Niro are kind of playing against type, I think. Especially in, in Scorsese's um, films. Because, you know, I mean, Pesci, you know, the, the role of his is that you think are, are Casino and Goodfellas were both times he's playing this, like, super, you know, this, like, hyper-violent um, person who just has the, all these outbursts, right? Yeah. And in this film, he's very sort of, again, very subdued and very, I don't know, like, there's something very restrained about him, too, right? And that makes kind of everything that happens around these characters more unsettling, I think. Yeah. Because it, it seems like, I mean, he's almost like the, it's almost like the banality of evil in a little bit with him. Yes, exactly, yeah. Because there's something like, I mean, there's a great line where he's like, <laughs> if we can whack a president, <laughs> we can whack a waiver president, which is great. <laughs> but there's something that just about him where, you know, all of his lines are couched in, you know, like these, these like double backs and like, you know, there are people who are saying these things, but it's not me necessarily who thinks this. When, like, you see in the film that that's actually not true and that he's sort of manipulating both Sheeran and, and, and Hoffa, you know. I mean, especially when he, like, you know, drops the pretense and it's just like, you know, you gotta, you gotta kill Hoffa, Frank. That's there's something really unsettling about him in that, mm. in that moment, I think. Uh, and I also think I really like that the fact that this film is not at all nostalgic for the period that it's portraying, I think. No, that's true. There's, like, a... If there's, like, sort of a focus on the... Um, or the the objects uh, that made up this time, you know, like the the hot dogs and the the specific like TVs and the the Canada Dry like glass sodas and stuff like that. Um, it never it doesn't make them look appealing whatsoever. No, it did have a sort of quality of mundanity that, yeah. that ran through everything. Yeah, and yeah, like you said earlier, drabness. Yeah, as well. And part of that's just because its setting is like you know like this rust this you know rust belt mafia as opposed to like the New York, like, more oversized version. And, like, the one uh, injection that you get with the, the character is, like, you know, he sort of is this this bigger-than-life, like, gangster character, too, you know? What's his mm. name? The guy who played um, Tony Pro was good. Stephen Graham. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's really good. I was actually pretty startled to learn that he was English. 
Yeah, I just learned that now. That was, that was surprising. I don't think I've seen him in anything besides this. Harvey Keitel in this is basically just an excuse to have Harvey yeah. Keitel in this, I feel. Which is, which is fine. I mean, whatever. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> I, like, I, like, I like Harvey Keitel. I mean, he's like barely in it, so. Yeah. Um, what did you think of the sort of stylistic choice to have the like dates of death pop up with these with the gangsters that you see? I like the idea of that in theory mm. because it is, it's a way of, again, de-glamorizing what's going on immediately. Yeah. And it sort of is a, it's, a, it's almost like an alienation device too, right? Yeah. And again, there's that pool of, pool of death and mortality over the whole film that, that feeds into that. But the way it was executed felt a bit clunky. It sort of does this freeze frame and then it digitally zooms in and it looked a bit dodgy, to be honest. Yeah, so, some of them do look bad, but some of them are good too. But, you know, it's good to see. I mean, even if it's probably the last time they'll be turned on in this way, you know? I mean, who knows? Maybe maybe Scorsese will make another movie with De Niro. But um, it's nice to see them try, you know what I mean? Mm. So I feel like both De Niro and Pacino have sort of been in the wilderness for the last, like, you know, I don't know, 20 years or so, if not longer. Certainly. And, and interestingly enough, it was De Niro who really got this project off the ground mm. and got Scorsese involved. That's interesting. It's been in development hell for a while, actually. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, I feel like a lot of Scorsese's films are in development hell like that, just because they they oftentimes cost so much money to make, you know? Right, is there anything else you'd like to touch on regarding this motion picture? I think we could both recommend it to people. Um, okay, well, guess we'll reconvene for the next Martin Scorsese picture. Which is hopefully a Bob Dylan documentary. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. It's it's crazy that this year there have been, uh, I think, both Scorsese and Steven Soderbergh, who have, uh, in my opinion at least, <laughs> have made one of the year's best films and one of the year's worst films. <laughs> it's so weird. Is there Has there ever been another time where this has happened? No, that is weird. And it was all done for Netflix? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. What the fuck? <laughs> what is happening in culture? <laughs> So it means that if you're a higher caliber director and you get attracted into the, the Netflix model, you don't just make garbage, you make one good film or one bad film. Yeah. Like that's the way it evens out. Yeah, exactly. Whereas if you're just like a middle tier director, then you just make garbage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> God. I was, I was pouring over my, um, you know, starting my calculations to the best of 2019. I was about to say, it certainly wasn't your serial. Yeah. Um, but we watched so many Netflix films. Yes. <laughs> And only maybe one of them were good. <laughs> maybe two. <laughs> um, we're basically a, a, an official Netflix spin-off podcast at this point. <laughs> Pretty much. Pass a piece of pizza, baby. I want some pizza. Lay me out a slice. Fetch a felon feature for me. It's a police sorry, dig them fights. Did you have any pizza? I did have some pizza, actually. The first seven weeks. So, Hugh, uh, this uh, last week I spent, or not the last week, but the, you know, the previous uh, week from this point, actually, this exact point right now, I spent in, um, you know, uh, the home state of two of your cultural heroes, I think, uh, Bob Dylan and... Uh, Mr. Prince himself. Indeed. Because I went back for Thanksgiving because my girlfriend's from Minnesota and we do Thanksgiving at her house because my parents don't really have that much of a Thanksgiving celebration. So it feels like a holiday that I can... Because your parents are work. 
No, because um, my grandfather died around Thanksgiving, and there's always been sort of a pall over it since then. You could all watch The Irishman together. Yeah, maybe. Um, but one year we went to Montreal instead of celebrating Thanksgiving, just to give you an example. So it's not really a big thing in my family. But, so, on the third day that we were there, um, her mom ordered pizzas, and I had a slice, mm. and it was good. It was, it was a very long holiday, so, truth be told, I cannot remember what was on this pizza. I believe there were mushrooms and the barbecue sauce, but besides that, I don't remember, so. You consumed unspecified Minneapolis pizza. Yeah. That's my pizza story of the week. Did you have any pizza stories, you? <laughs> Nope. Okay, great. Uh, so moving on to the next part, which is our project segment. Project time, it's project time. 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 Turkey, tomato, ba 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 da ba. And this week we have two great films lined up. Uh, first, we're going to talk about um, Clint Eastwood's The 1517 to Paris. So, Hugh, tell me about this mysterious movie. What is The 1570 to Paris? And why did I watch it? And what is it for Rotten Tomatoes for? What is the Rotten Tomatoes score? It is 23 percentage points. Wow, that's low. Yeah. Not as low as the next movie we're going to talk about, or any of the other ones we're going to talk about as part of this. Because it's uh, descending. Yeah, it is. To the depths of cinema hell. The 1517 to Paris is a film by one Clint Eastwood. Mm, I, don't know, I don't know this Eastwood. Could you tell me who he is? The actor turned director, turned sometime actor, but also still director. Yes. Okay, now, now that you said that, I remember. He, has he directed such films as... Letters to Iwo Jima, which features prominently in this movie. And The Mule, one of your favorite films. One of my favorite films of last year, The Mule. Of all time. Uh, I wouldn't go that far. This film got released the same year as The Mule. So that's another two films in one year. Was it one of the worst? We'll find out in a bit. This film tells the story, the ripped from the headline story, of uh, three American tourists who uh, stopped a terrorist on a train. Yes. Essentially. But, Hugh, tourism is a kind of economic terrorism, if you think about it. And who does Eastwood get to play these three heroic Americans? Can I guess? Yes. Uh, three up-and-coming stars like um, Ryan Gosling and Brad Pitt and um, Tom Hanks. Well, that would make sense, right? Yeah. But no. Oh, well, okay, let me, can I try again? Yeah. Uh, three character actors who are also young, like... Lance Hendrickson and <laughs> Phil Paxton and um, uh, who's another character actor? Tom Noonan. Stephen Tobolowsky. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> played all three of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, not them either. Well, okay, uh, can I try again? This is your last guess. Okay, three uh, unknown actors, uh, three up-and-coming stars who Clint specifically auditioned to play these roles. And they went on to have big careers. Wrong again, sir. 
Oh well, I can't. I can't possibly. Who who could it possibly be to play these these real life heroes? Who else? But the real life heroes themselves. What the heroes play the heroes? No way. That's right. Well, I can't believe it. They being Spencer Stone, Anthony Sadler, and Alec Scalatos. Yes. Well pronounced. <laughs> kind of. Yes. So this tells the story of the event, but also the story of the these three men. In the years leading up to the event. Yes. <laughs> the many years. <laughs> so we, we get to see their childhood as well as their some of their military training and stuff like the, that. Hugh, this is, this is essentially structured like the Irishman. Mmm. <laughs> Not really. I wish they were de-aged as children, though. That would have been amazing. <laughs> that would be amazing. So the, the three of them were childhood friends. Uh, two of them uh, went into the military in some capacity, mm. although a relatively limited somewhat incompetent capacity <laughs> yeah apparently yeah well the other one just i guess did something that we don't know about until he joined his friends on this european trip it's it's not explicit kind of strangely and then uh you know they have they travel around europe for a bit then this stuff happens you know so that's the film did you know that uh, after the events of the the real events that uh, all three of these men became honorary french citizens I wouldn't be surprised. And also Spencer Stone uh, was stabbed in another high-profile incident. Was he really? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know about this. I only know from his Wikipedia page. I didn't remember hearing about it. Yeah, neither did I. But yeah, he got, got stabbed. Yeah, this is a shame. In 2015 by a Californian ex-offender. Of what? Of Vietnamese descent. Is that what you're asking? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's kind of like a reverse Mark Wahlberg game. <laughs> Maybe it was a revenge attack. <laughs> Liam Neeson style against any white person. Any, any white Hollywood actor. Any white meathead. All right. So what do you think about it? I'm glad you asked. So in a sentence, this is the idiot's version of a moment of innocence. <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, isn't to say it's a bad film. Mm. I actually think the 1517 to Paris is neither a bad film nor a good film. Instead, it's a fascinating film. Mm. Now, if, if Clint Eastwood's name was not attached to this project, it would be pretty much at the top of the list of films I never wish to see in my lifetime. <laughs> That's true. Not that I think the story itself is, like, uninteresting. I'd probably find, like, a factual recounting of the events in, like, article or podcast form absorbing enough, right? Mm. But the idea of watching a Hollywood reenactment of the story sounds like Guantanamo-grade torture to me. <laughs> wow. But with Eastwood attached, it has the potential to be weird or at the very least interesting. Mm. I think it is interesting and weird. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I think I think we can both agree that one of the pleasures of Eastwood's films is often their idiosyncrasies, right? Yes. Especially the way they sometimes function at odds with his conservative libertarian politics. With his with his with his stated libertarian politics. Yes. Which oftentimes do not come through in his films. Oftentimes the bluntness with which he makes political statements is at odds with the complicated nature of conservatism that he presents in his movies. Indeed. As in The Mule, for instance. So there's, there's, the, there's the Eastwood factor mm. uh, that's, that's in this film's favour. Then, of course, we have the decision, as we said, to use the actual 
participants in this event to play themselves. Yes. Which would be a risky move for any director, but a doubly risky one for Eastwood, who's, who's pretty notorious for his brisk one-take approach to filmmaking. So how is that style going to work with non-professionals who need a lot of prep and coaching in order to turn in a convincing performance? So reportedly they were informed that they'd be playing themselves a mere three weeks before shooting was due to commence. <laughs> but, you know, you, you have to say it, it probably can't be too hard to prepare for the role of yourself. I mean, yes and no. Like, there's a, obviously there's an inherent advantage to that approach yeah. as opposed to portraying someone else. But you still have to act, right? That's true. And do these boys act to you? Boy, do they ever. <laughs> Hugh, I think I am pretty simpatico about what you think. At least, at least, I'm going to qualify that statement with something, which is that I think the as soon as the film skips forward and leaves behind their boyhood forms, it becomes fascinating. I agree. I completely agree. Before that, though, it is completely inept. It's so bad. But also hilariously so. <laughs> yes. It's 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 almost insane how bad the first like thirty minutes of this film are. Uh, this is bad in the sense that the children who have been hired to play the young versions of them are terrible. <laughs> are completely they they feel like they're reading off of cue cards to some degree. The film's script is awful too. Yeah, so the the script was written by Dorothy Bliskell. Yes, and. She literally has zero other screenplay credits and then the yes. other, uh, w- only one other writing credit on her CV at all. Yeah. It's really peculiar that they went with a first-time screenwriter for this type of project, I think, which is like an adaptation of a high-profile non-fiction book yeah. that recounts a real event. It's just it's a bit bizarre decision, but yes. I don't want to blame her per se because no. the buck stops with Eastwood and it's clear that there's a lot of improvisation as well in certain scenes at least. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's terrible from that standpoint. Yeah. If we're going to poke fun at this first and then maybe get to the more interesting parts in a second. So I have to say that uh, as much shit as I'm giving the uh, children actors in this, I have to, the adult actors who are playing their parents are also really bad. I think especially Judy Greer is probably one yeah. of the worst performances I've seen in any movie. Which is a shame because Judy Greer is... You know, generally a pretty good actress, you know? Yeah, I don't think this is her fault at all. <laughs> I mean, yes. But uh, there's a great scene where basically the the two mothers of um, Alec and Spencer have a, a conference with their, their son's teacher. And he su- they su- uh, she suggests that they should both be on anti-ADHD medication. <laughs> And <laughs> there's a scene, there's a, there's a sequence where the teacher is sort of like, well, it says statistically that single mothers, you know, their their sons are liable to be turned out bad. And then um, <laughs> Jenna Fisher just has this line where she says, my God is bigger than your statistics, <laughs> which I thought was hysterical. I thought that whole scene was absolutely hilarious. <laughs> it's so bad. It's so bad. There's just something off about. It feels like it was made for like a shitty, like you know, uh, it, it felt like it was made, commissioned by like a like local like school council to yes talk about like, yes it did <laughs> you know the dangers of overprescribing medications <laughs> or something like that. It's so weird. Low rent propaganda. Yeah. 
I mean, not that I necessarily disagree that, you know, people are too quick to give their children dangerous drugs, but there's something about the way it's filmed is just so weird. And the way that the dialogue is written, it just feels very like, you know, you pulled this out of some statistic or some, like, booklet that is about this subject, you know? Very strange. Um, and both both Jenna Fisher and Judy Greer are just, just so bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But let's not forget the way we transition to these scenes of their childhood. Please. Via the opening line of narration. So it's the film starts off and we see the three men driving down a highway in a car. Yes. And the, 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 the verbatim narration we hear is this. I found it and wrote it down. Mm. My name is Anthony Sadler. You're probably wondering why a brother like me is hanging out with these two crackers. Oh, yeah. Is that what you were wondering, Hunter? <laughs> I know that's what I was wondering. I, I was also, well, what what relation did that bit of the film have to do with anything else? I know, because his narration does not appear again anywhere else. And he's basically excised from the narrative for a large stretch of it. So it's, it's like such a bad note to open the film on. And then you get these like horrendous childhood scenes. And let's not forget the presence of Happy Thank You More Please alumnus Tony Hale. That's right. <laughs> right. Sam number two himself. And... 17 again alumnus Thomas Boot Edge Edge Lennon among the teaching staff. <laughs> he, he is also terrible, but there's just something about the fact that they that Eastwood cast him and Tony Hale in this role. I know. That was so it's weird. So, so, so funny. <laughs> it's, it's almost like he's in on the fact that this is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> the, the child version of Spencer Stone is such a psychopath. Yeah. I mean, I guess the adult version is too, but at least, like, you know, he seems more like a human being, right? The way he's characterized, he's just like this, like, you know, you feel like he's gonna, he's gonna be a school shooter. I mean, he's got this, like, fascination with guns, you know? I can't, I can't believe he pulled, the, the scene where he pulls a shotgun is so weird. <laughs> it's just like, whoa. <laughs> I love the memory. He's like, you ever been hunting before? <laughs> uh, did you know that Jaleel White uh, played their science teacher? Who? <laughs> Urkel from Family Matters. Really? Yeah. I used to watch that. The, or no, the, the history, the history teacher, the history teacher. Sorry. Oh, he gave them like the battle plans, right? That was so silly. Yeah. <laughs> so I got some more battle plans for you. Some unspecified random World War Two battle plans that you wanted. There's blood on this teacher's hands, you know. Because mm. <laughs> like nine times out of ten, if a, if a student is asking you for battle plans, they are going to attack the school that you're in. <laughs> <laughs> and the, I, I, I like the bit um, when he like he fails to get the military posting that he wants, mm. and he's talking to his mum, and like he wants to give up completely, but she's like, but. But Spencer, you love war. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was funny. He's like, yeah. When you were a boy, I, I always saw you. I always thought I saw you inserting yourself into war. And I, 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 I like that they try to have it both ways. We're saying, like, I wanted to help people. Yeah. Yeah, I know. You're like, there's so a line funny. in which this is a similar moment actually of the film when he's talking to um, Andrew Sadler, mm. and they're just like hanging out watching sports like men do. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and he's talking about his, you know, his disappointment. And the guy's like, oh, yeah, but you like helping people. You've always liked helping people, but it's never been established that he has. Yeah. Like, I, that's not part of the text of the film at all. It's just stated. Well, they, they, they state it twice, right? And then whenever you see him as a child playing with war, it's, it's just the gunplay, right? Like, there's no, like... Let's help the civilians. But I do think this film, 
I think this film accurately shows you how the like sort of um, how inculcated young boys get into like into war into like war games in America. So I do think I do think you have to give the credit to the film for that because it's not really something that's addressed that often in in, in movies anyway. And it was a bit weird in, in the childhood scenes. They also establish what it, it felt like a definite note of like homoeroticism that runs through the film, or even just a general unintentional subtext of queerness. I was genuinely wondering if Judy Greer and Jenna Fisher were a couple oh, yeah. or supposed to be a couple. Yeah. That's the way it kind of reads. And you're like, why are they always together? But then it's like a Christian school. So you're like, Oh no. Yeah. Then we have the, the kid version of um, Andrew Sadler telling the other, the other kids, you guys are great, but I need a girlfriend. One of us needs to know what it's like. <laughs> that, <laughs> that was so funny. funny. <laughs> Did you also feel that the the later scenes uh, where they're sort of portrayed as these, you know, carefree heterosexual guys just looking for ladies, like it felt like very overcompensatory? <laughs> hey, that's just Eastwood. Um, oh, no, comfortable. Possibly. <laughs> it's like, yeah, we're definitely straight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now that you say that, I definitely could see that, uh, that a note of that in this film. But to be honest, I was so like... This film just, it was so inexplicable to me. But there's something so, like, aggressively and, like, showily, like, um, heterosexual about the camera, too, that I was like, what, what, mm. why? Why is this happening? And I can just imagine, like, you know, like, 88-year-old Clint Eastwood, like, <laughs> pushing the camera up this girl's car, and you're like, what, why? Ew. So, so there you go. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think, I think we can agree that the film gets, um, it, it reveals its pleasures as soon as they transition away from this disastrous. And I do have to admit that I found a bit of a personal connection to the opening sequence too. And then, uh, my friends and I used to run around and shoot each other with airsoft guns. So if I hadn't found film, maybe I would have joined the military. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. I'm too much of a coward to join the military. Mm. Uh, and also I don't love my country. So after the film, uh, jumps to the future, it gets better and more interesting, right? Let's let's talk about some of the ways it does. Um, because <laughs> essentially this film is just a, a European hangout film for about 50 minutes. Well, I mean, before we get to that point, the film takes pain to establish these three men, or at least two of them, as yeah. extremely ordinary. Yeah, I would say even sub-ordinary. Yeah, indeed. Even the two who have military ties are presented as kind of fuck-ups within the military. That, that's what sort of makes this film, uh, not a, maybe not, if not a subversion, a sort of, um, it separates it from the, you know, what do you'd expect from a standard, like, conservative um, army rah-rah type film that this could have been, you know? Sort of, but then it's conservative in its own way because it's yeah, like, yeah. you know, the heroism of the ordinary American man type thing. Yeah, yeah, you know? that's definitely true. That's definitely true. Um, but yeah, like one of one of the guys uh, fails to make the grade at military academy or whatever it was, and and goes to like the shitty class, and then the other guy carelessly leaves his supplies in a village in Afghanistan, which includes like live am- ammunition and stuff. Yeah, and all this is done to to heighten and emphasize the the heroism that they display during the the. Train yeah. journey. which I guess we should be clear is like you know it's generally a heroic action that these guys did. Like we don't want to like. Uh, criticize the fact. You know? No, 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 not at all. But I think what the film wants to say is it wasn't a foregone conclusion that they were going to step up. Like, these mm. were not exceptional military men. They were shitty military men who'd never seen action and one civilian friend of theirs, right? Yeah, and that's what makes it, you know, interesting as opposed to, I don't know. Yeah, and I think I think actually casting the, 
the real participants to play themselves works towards that end, if that's the thing that Eastwood is most interested in. They are nothing if not ordinary, dull, boring as shit guys, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. And I actually, actually really liked how aggressively mundane the scenes of their, their European travels are. <laughs> Even though they can scarcely act, they do feel like real people traveling through Europe. If I were to go to Europe, you know, on vacation, obviously I wouldn't go to the same sites that they were on, but I feel like it would, it would feel something like this, you know? It would, yeah. Like, these scenes have, like, an amateur quality, which is actually kind of refreshing for a film of this nature yeah. on this scale. But there's something so there's something so flat about this film, too. Yeah, they, they feel very stilted and artificial, but, like, that twist of amateurism does lend them this ordinary feeling that's in keeping with its theme. And I, I also think it's, it, it, it really works to heighten the action sequences, too, I think. Mm. Or those, those definitely feel a little more switched on in the filmmaking, I think. Yeah, because yeah, the narrative like slows down to just hanging out with these yeah, people is, on, on vacation. There's there's a great scene which uh, that review I sent to you highlighted where they say where they just go and eat gelato for a while, <laughs> and they make comments like this is really good. Yeah. <laughs> I love the bit where they're just walking around, you know, seeing the sights of Rome. It's great. And the, I think the the beautiful thing is, if I can say it's beautiful, their performances are amusing for people like us, kind of laughing at the film on some level. <laughs> yeah. But even on the film's own terms, I think it was the right decision. Yeah, I agree with you. I think this film will be so much worse with professional, competent actors, like at every level, on every level. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And like, you have to credit Eastwood with having the guts and the clout to yeah. actually do this. Yeah, Because I sure. can't imagine a studio taking a risk on like, Taking a risk on like a mid-tier director or something like that, who would otherwise make this type of film, you know? Yeah, I, I agree that it, there's something so risky about this movie too. But but it's so weird because when you're watching it, it just feels like it, there's no risk inherent in the filmmaking besides like the casting and stuff like that. It's just so no. like it's just so like it, the the style is so like flat and like you know there you know it's just confidently made I guess. But again, we could say that this is like, it's like funny when you put like, you know, the, the real people, quote unquote, into these, into this, like, uh, into this, like, like Hollywood competent style. Right. But then it works as a comparison between like, you know, building their prosaic and like dull lives in comparison to like, you know, the, the scene that ends the film, the, the part where they subdue the, um, the terrorists and also the active shooter sequence too, you know, Mm. right. But I think both of those scenes are really well, well done on their own terms as well. I do like the way, I guess this is a, somewhat of a screenplay criticism in particular, the way they try and foreshadow the incident, like in early stages yeah, of their lives. poorly done too. But it, it did feel like they were, it did feel kind of like they were retrospectively, you know, attaching meaning other things that... Or, or just purely inventing lines of dialogue that yeah. presumably didn't happen. <laughs> I did see, I did think the scene, I thought both sequences where... Uh, Spencer Stone as a child and then as an adult like reads that Bible verse were so funny. <laughs> like the first one where he's like praying is like, "Please God, turn me into a weapon of your of your peace." And I was just like, "Whoa, this kid is a bad job." <laughs> but then, and then, but then when it comes back later after the attack, and it's just Spencer Stone like staring off screen like he's like he's challenged. <laughs> I guess the vibe I got in that scene where he's just, he just seems like a little slow, you know. He's repeating this Bible person voiceover. He's like not blinking. And I was just that was so funny. 
Then there's also a false alarm at Military Academy where Spencer Stone like exhibits some bravery. Well, kind above of his I mean, classmates. They, they do like uh, yeah, it's like foolhardy bravery. Even if it was foolhardy, yeah, yeah. But then there's like a number of specific lines of dialogue, like uh, Stone's mum. I can't remember if it was Judy Greer or Jenna Fisher, but but she says. God spoke to me and said something very exciting is going to happen to you. <laughs> Jenner, Jenner Fisher is Alex's mom and Judy Greer is okay, yeah. mom. So it was Judy Greer then. Yeah. And then um, Stone himself says, you ever feel like life is just catapulting you towards something important? And then they go over the same line again in a later conversation. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I, I'm laughing at these now, but I, I do think those lines kind of work to in the films i don't know sort of portrayal of of the way you know these these um men have been like set up to expect that they'll be like great you know if they join the military and stuff like that Mm. i think it kind of works if you if you can read this film as as, you know be somewhat critical of like the military organizations right i think you can't i think there's a degree of criticism you can read into it even if obviously it's he's not like completely um attacking like the military or anything like that no 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 um i do think that the way that this film portrays the uh attacker is like you know standard hollywood racism you know we don't learn anything about him and he's just the. but i mean obviously this is a film focused on um their perspective so you know yeah i don't know if there was a way you could really get around that without changing the film significantly i, I think the problem is that it's not only told from their perspective because there's that weird um sequence where you just see that the attacker like you know board the train the camera is just focused on him and like the the three men don't enter into it at all but that just felt like decoration for the scene well that 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 actually struck me as like more i mean it, you know if i were picking this film if i were Clint Eastwood, i don't know why you, you, <laughs> you just don't have it be um because I mean, obviously they're sort of like setting this up as their destiny or whatever right to some degree hmm. or like there there's like the intuition but I think that by making that, that it, it like others this man like further, right? Where he's like he's like inscrutable because they're introducing him this way. Versus like um, if you had limited that sequence to just their perspective, it would seem more, you know, I mean, there'd be more realism to it, right? That's true. Where it would be more locked to their perspective. And I thought that the way that it broke away was kind of like, you know, you're granting perspective to this character, but you're sort of suggesting that he, it's not deserving of a more exploratory thing, right? Not to get too like bogged down into, into this, but I did think it was it, it was like fairly you know standard Hollywood racism towards people of Middle Eastern descent. So you know, although to be fair, literally a terrorist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's okay to be racist towards him for that reason. Well, I mean, like you are portraying someone who yeah was about to murder a train full of people. Like I don't know, like. What are you going to get from like exploring much of his background, unless that's the focus of the film? I wanted like a four lions esque comedy about his life and how he got to this point. Like when the guy opens the toilet door, he should have been like <laughs> half naked in the middle of a shit or something, yeah. but with guns on him. <laughs> He's like rushing down the the, the train and poop just going out of his ass. But I do think um, Scarlottos has uh, maybe the second best line reading. Please, which is when he's in a bar in Germany with his girlfriend. And she asks him, is it everything you dreamed? And he responds, like, without any affect whatsoever. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. It's amazing. <laughs> Who do you think was the... Do you think he was the worst actor? I think he might have been. And he's given the least lines, I think. Yeah, I think I think that Spencer Stone's probably the best. He's also given the most to 
to do. Andrew Sadler's okay for some of it, actually. Yeah, I, I agree. I, th- I, I I love the scene where where they meet that that the the Asian woman. Mm. And it, it just cuts and she's gone. And I'm like, I was I was saying to my about this, and he was just like, they definitely had sex with her. And I was like, yeah. Like this this film is so horny. It's so weird. Mm. It's weird how horny Clint has gotten with his last couple films. Because <laughs> both this and the Mule are like so like yeah, it's like overwhelmed or overweening like performative sexy air horniness you know yeah because they never follow through like when they wake up there it's just the two of them in their room it isn't show- oh yeah yeah that's true but this is it's such a strange film i will say it's difficult to assign it a rating yeah it is um but so shall we move on to our uh, if we would agree with the tomato score 23 percentage points would you agree with that rating would you uh no i'd give it much higher yeah i think i would actually go over 50 at least wow so maybe like 55%? Yeah, I was thinking that are like 60, something around there. Yeah, something like that. It's, it's like the three stars of like, you know, half this movie is completely inept and bad. Uh, another half is interesting. So. so, yeah, three star experience, I think. Yeah. yeah. Odd film, but definitely not the uh, total disaster that some critics, some, some liberal critics have tarred the genius <laughs> Clint uh, with it. So it sounds like we're going to spare this turkey. Yeah. We've, we've been sparing a lot of turkeys, yo. It's only, only one that's, that's, that's gotten the gas so far. <laughs> um, but shall, shall, shall we move on to our next uh, supposed turkey? Let's do it. Ghosts of Mars is a uh, John Carpenter film from 2001. That it is. Long time ago now. At a more innocent time and a more innocent age. I think I would have been like 15 or something. I would have been, was it 2001 you said? Yeah. I would have been seven years old. So I did not know this movie existed when I was that age. So this film is set on Mars, as you might expect. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. During the credits, we get this kick-ass music by Carpenter himself. Yeah. And we get this uh, sci-fi train going through this Martian landscape. Mm. Right. Then the train pulls up to the station or whatever, and uh, some people board the train because they're like, what's this train doing here? And uh, they find a woman handcuffed to her bunk. Mm. And they're like, well, what's this woman doing here? And it turns out she's a cop. A cop for what? What's the organ? What's the uh, government system of this society? You know? I don't know. Martial law. Don't, don't you don't you remember the uh, opening sequence where the the voiceover? I, I wasn't paying that much attention to the. Oh, text. You, this is a matriarchy. <laughs> Was it really? Yes. I missed that. I can't remember the exact line, but it's like Mars, blah blah blah, the government, matriarchy. <laughs> wow, I, I guess that explains some of the later lines of dialogue, but yeah, still. yeah. Okay, so it's so it's a matriarchy on Mars. Yes. And uh, a trial commences, mm-hmm. and they start questioning the woman, who is played by Natasha Henstridge, mm. species herself, uh, whose character is named uh, Lieutenant Melanie Ballard. Mm. Uh, presumably in a nod uh, to J.G. Ballard. 
indeed. And uh, yeah, she explains what happened. What happened to this train? What happened to the rest of her crew? Because turns out that she was sent on a mission to this uh, outpost in this mining sector mm. to recover a notorious criminal called James Desolation Williams. Well, we should introduce that uh, Natasha Hanson Ridge was not the first choice for this film. Apparently, Michelle Yeoh, Franca Patenta, and Famke Jansen were all chosen for this role, but they all turned it down. But who was chosen but didn't turn it down, Hugh? Which famous actress? Courtney Love. <laughs> oh, right, and she pulled out. No, she left the product after her then-boyfriend's ex-wife ran over her foot with her car. While yeah, she was training. so she had to pull out. Yeah. We can talk about the casting stuff in a second. Mm-hmm. Let's set this mother up. Okay. Right? So as I said... Uh, Lieutenant Ballard was sent on this mission with a, a group of other cops to recover a uh, prisoner mm. called James Desolation Williams, played by Ice Cube. Apparently he's murdered a bunch of people, mm. and uh, he needs to be got. Right. <laughs> as, as they do. So they turn up at this mining town. Um, it appears to be abandoned. You know, there's not a lot of life going on. Mm-hmm. Some weird stuff going on inside some of the compounds. Some weird uh, sharp sculptures made of scissors and shit. Yeah, yeah. They find a bunch of bodies that have been hung from the roof and uh, decapitated. Mm-hmm. So it looks like something evil is going down. And they discover that uh, Desolation Williams is holed up in a cell mm-hmm. along with some other people. Mm-hmm. And that uh, maybe he, he wasn't responsible for all this because he was locked up. Yeah. They come to realise that... The charges against him were bogus. Right. He's not a murderer. No. Just a robber. Just a robber. Just a crim. Mm. But there's a thin line between a crook and a cop, as we know, Mm. from this film, exclusively. Anyway, yeah, so there's this... uh, Turns out there's this evil ghost fog Mm. that, uh, you know, possessed all these miners and turned them into evil killers. Mm-hmm. They went crazy, so there's this whole clan of crazy ex-minor people, zombie things. Who have mutilated their bodies. So the film is, you know, our heroes surviving against this onslaught of evil zombie alien ghosts. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it turns out, like, that's a, a, a native organism to Mars, and it's protecting itself from invaders, which are the humans, mm. by possessing other humans and killing everything. Mm. That's basically it. Some other stuff happens, but yeah, that's specific to the film. Mm. What did you make of the critically maligned Ghosts of Mars, mm. my compadre? Uh, that's an interesting question, you. To be honest, you, I kind of love this film. <laughs> uh, do I think it's a, a a great film? Yes. No. Not necessarily. Oh, damn it. They're, they're, it's, it's a chintzy, you know, film. It's, it's odd that this is like, it's kind of Carpenter's like only pure science fiction film, you know. It's the only one of his that takes place in a world other than Earth. Although, funnily enough, it was originally conceived as a continuation of the Escape From franchise. Mm, Escape From Mars, I know. And the Ice Cube character was supposed to be Snake Plissken. Yeah. Played, of course, by Kurt Russell. Which would have been interesting, but alas. And that makes sense, because that's basically what this film is. Yeah. But on Mars. <laughs> but uh, there's just, you know, uh, I, I, 
I mean, it is kind of like a a postmodern version of all of his other films. Right? Yes, it is. It's a mashup. <laughs> there's there's the you know the, I guess Dark Stars is other like big sci-fi film. That's true. His very first film. Yeah. There's the uh, sort of um, assault on a single isolated location from assault from thir- assault from precinct thirteen. Mm-hmm. Indeed. There's the um, paranoia about being infected with a agent that'll possess your body from the thing. There is the need to get away from a specific location, like the escape movies, as sort of indicated by the you know the fact that that's there. There's the sort of Lovecraftian um, texture to the uh, creatures, which is sort of in the mouth of Bandacy, I think. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's a little bit of a, a dollop of the uh, social commentary or something like They Live, too. Yes. Um, and, you know, I think that all, when it's all matched together, I found it to be really satisfying. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know what else to say, but there, there's just... I, you know what? I'm never not going to enjoy a movie where... Uh, Ice Cube and Natasha Histridge are shotgunning, you know, uh, sort of zombie-ish creatures that are running at them and, and screaming at them. So, and I think that this film has this like weird, dreamy mood too. That's that it, it mostly conjures through its very strange use of like um, fade-ins and and superimpositions and and jump cuts, you know. Um, and I really enjoyed it a lot. Even, it is extremely chintzy, and, uh, you know, I don't know if it's a good film, per se. It's definitely not one of Carpenter's uh, great works, but I really enjoyed it. Hmm. What did you think? Um, well, I guess this is a, a unanimous <laughs> installment of this project, because Please. I pretty much agree with everything you said, and some of the, the sentences you said. I've written down verbatim in front of me. Wow. So. Oh, damn. But yeah, I agree. This is not Carpenter's best effort, obviously. Mm. But I ask you, the audience, and anyone who's given this a bad review, how could you not enjoy this? I don't understand. <laughs> I mean, there are parts I can see someone who is, you know, more sensitive to political, like, things get offended by, right? Yes, like the, the, um, the questionable sexual politics. Yeah. But aside from that, it's, it's perfect. <laughs> 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 and it, you know it's definitely a product of its time right yeah well i mean during the discussion of in the mouth of madness on a previous episode of this podcast we talked about the fact that from a certain point onward carpenter feels like a man out of time yeah and this definitely leans into that to some degree yeah it definitely feels sort of retrograde and it's it's uh and that particular part of it's it's i don't know depiction of like sexuality but i think that the um the main character is, like, fairly... I don't know. You could have, like, a feminist reading into it, you know? Yeah, and I think I think, I think think um, Hensridge is quite good in it as well. Yeah, I, I would agree. She has a very uh, enjoyable energy in this film, which I was actually really surprised by. Uh, maybe just because of, you know, her reputation as just being sort of a um, uh, icy, you know, emotionless bombshell, right? I mean, I haven't seen it be in a book that in. Yeah. But I thought she was. I thought she had the very good laconic energy in this that I thought was really. Yeah, I thought she was good. Yeah, and also I thought Ice Cube was fun too. <laughs> Me too. They were the two performances that were yeah. good. Um, obviously, Pam Greer is dispatched much too early. Yeah, that's true. Jason Statham is terrible. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, his character is also like disgusting. 
So there was actually a plan for him to play the Ice Cube part. Uh, that would have been that would have been god awful. But apparently he wasn't famous enough, and they wanted Ice Cube. And I'm so glad that it went that way. Because Ice Cube is just so much fun in this, like, you know. <laughs> and especially because it, it it kind of plays into the you know it has the line about the line that it has the line about the difference between a crook and a cop. Yeah. And it talks about that kind of stuff. And I think with a racial dimension, at least there's there's more resonance there than if it was just Jason Statham. Yeah. Uh, and I, I have to say also, I, I, the ending of this film I thought was amazing. The ending is perfect. It's, it's one of the best endings I can think of for any movie. It's so good. So you said, you said basically what, what, I, what I'd written down in my notes, mm. which was how could you complain about a film that offers up Ice Cube in red camo pants wielding dual Uzis against goofy alien zombies. We have to talk about his pants. <laughs> he's so great. <laughs> he's just like, yeah, his pants are crazy. His pa- his outfit was the best. Yeah, it, it is insane. And yeah, the scene at the end, um, he, he busts uh, Henstridge out of prison or lockup or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And hands her like these shining silver Uzis. <laughs> yes. And they just they just run out guns guns at the ready. It's it's so good, and I just I just enjoyed that moment both on like a sort of iconic. This is like like cool and enjoyable, and I, I just like I like the image of the two of them just you know ready to to meet the apocalypse head on. You know, it's mm. it's such a great image. It's like you know it's like one of the last you know things that you see in Carpenter's career too. You know, and it's like this like very defiant like fuck you spirit that runs through it. I have to say, Hugh, I did, after, as soon as I finished watching this film, I did buy it on Blu-ray, so, in a, in a limited edition, too. So, I think it's um, interesting to learn from my exhaustive research of the main Wikipedia page for this film, that Carpenter later wondered if he shouldn't have made it more obvious that this film was supposed to be tongue-in-cheek. Some critics compared it unfavorably to his more, you know, horror-specific classics. Yeah. And said, you know, this wasn't the least bit scary. And but it, like looking back on it from 2019, it's pretty obvious that this film is not taking itself seriously. <laughs> well, you have to you have to look at it from the lineage of like Escape from L.A. Right, or, like Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah, because there there are two like sort of strands in in Carpenter's career, I think. Right, like there's like both like the sort of I mean it's like you know the the divide is is encapsulated sort of by Escape from New York and like Halloween, right. Or there's like these very sort of stripped down and paranoid like horror films, and then there's these like funny goofy action films, and that's the two like modes that he works in, I think. So I actually I don't I don't see this as as much of a break from his previous films as as some idiot critics do, because it definitely feels like a piece of like with Big Trouble in Little China and and They Live and and uh, Escape from L.A. Yeah, well, Escape from L.A. like directly. Yeah, like, wasn't that the previous film? Or? No, Vampires the previous film. Uh, but but Escape from L.A. stars uh, Pam Greer too. Mm. Another film that another role that sort of is uh, has questionable sexual politics. <laughs> but I I really liked the aesthetic of this film. Yeah, so did I. It, it every every image felt like it was it was a live action version of like a a shitty like pulp science fiction cover, <laughs> and I thought that was incredibly charming. And I was. Uh... I was definitely expecting more dodgy, like, early 2000s CGI, but it seemed that it was, like, almost entirely practical. Yeah. And basically the only CGI is, like, some of the fog effects and stuff. The train also... And obviously, like, compositing stuff, and but the train looked pr- like a muddle to me. 
Yeah, it, but there are some shots where it sort of had a digital sheen to it. I think. Okay, like like when it's more part of the landscape in the distance. Yeah, I think I think so. Or like when the the characters are in frame with it. I think I don't know. But it really feels like this could have been made in like 1985 yeah, without much alteration <laughs> at all. I do I do love the only part that has like obvious CG effects. There are like um, it's like a 3D movie where it's like coming at the camera. That was so funny. Mm. Like a, a, a sort of subplot of this film is that uh, Natasha or um, <clears throat> sorry Melanie Ballard is a drug addict, and whenever she takes yes. this pill, her medallion that she stores her stash in sort of comes to life in, in this like weird CGI pattern. <laughs> but I didn't actually think the way that Carpenter chooses to externalize her strung outness was great too, because <laughs> it's just like her like just like sitting back in on her on her um you know her cot like with uh, images of um oceans <laughs> super fire <laughs> so good it's like really cheesy but also like you know i mean that's what it feels like to get high <laughs> like who am i to to uh, pass judgment if something is too obvious you know <laughs> but yeah i think i think there's a lot of pleasure to be had with the the design and the effects mm. work here yeah definitely. definitely harkens back not just in the sense that it's practical but the the actual design harkens back to like mid to lady mid to late 80s sci-fi action films, mm. I think. Yeah, definitely. There was certainly a total recall vibe at points. Yeah, I would agree with that. It definitely definitely chintzier, though. I love the look of the, the train. Mm, me too. And there's a there's a great moment where the scientist is, like, flying this antiquated hot air balloon over this sort of barren Mars landscape. Oh, yeah, that was great. That was actually that was a good use of uh, CGI effects, too. I'm not sure if that was much CGI again. That to me looked like the balloon was a model just composited on possibly a CGI backdrop. It seemed like parts of it were CGI, but I could be wrong. It actually gave me Lex season three vibes, but no one needs to know that. Well, when I watch my pristine restored Blu-ray copy, I'll, I'll let you know what I think. Yeah, I didn't watch the greatest version of it. <laughs> and I guess because it reminded me of Lex season three, that was like a CGI heavy show. So it probably has a similar like cheap compositing effect feel. Mm. That I, that I kind of find charming yeah. in some CGI. Me too. Me too. Me too. But also, uh, also the other thing that this really reminded me of, and you know, maybe intentionally, is uh, the video game Doom, <laughs> which it seems to have a lot of uh, kinship to. Um, both like the Martian setting, just like the you know, like sort of possession angle, and the I don't know the ultraviolence of the the great the great <laughs> soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh man. But uh, yeah, this yeah, good stuff. And the, the, it's a kind of a beautiful film too, I think, just in the way it's shot and and put together. I think the cinematography is legitimately great. That's by like Carpenter's, um, you know, usual guy, at least as far back as Prince of Darkness. I should do my duty as a brother and say that that my brother has been a, a ardent defender of this film since its release. He saw, I remember he saw it at the movies, and he's been vindicated by us. Yeah. It's it's definitely it's definitely good. I can see why a critic would dislike this, but critics are idiots for not enjoying something like yeah, this. Yeah, fucking critics. What the fuck? I think I think there is something interesting about this film's political stance too. Even if it's not like articulated that as directly as something like they live, right? I thought yeah, I thought it was gonna be like a bit more uh forceful in that regard, but it's it's fairly, you know, cursory. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I feel like it, it in part it feels like a 
sort of, it's almost like an uh, anti-Western in a way, you know? The project of bringing the outlaw and the lawman together is not like to create civilization in this, right? It's just to get away from civilization at the end, right? You know, people sometimes read Carpenter's like conservative, or at least they're like a libertarian-ish filmmaker. Do they? Yeah, I think I think so. Maybe I'm mistaken. Okay. But um, I think that this film, it's interesting that it like sort of acknowledges like genocide and colonialism, right? And like sort of suggests, you know, the only way that um, society is going to get through this stuff is, is, is torn down. And the only thing you could do is to, to you know, shoot your way out and, and hope that you survive. Yeah, and it questions the the law enforcement. Mm, yeah, because, I mean, there's sort of there's sort of an obvious, um, you know, like their, their costume is very sort of Nazi-ish. And there is something about the way that they eventually dispatch of the creatures via, like, a nuclear explosion yeah. to wipe them all out. But it doesn't even destroy them, which is interesting. Hmm. Like, it's almost like the, it's impossible to repress, like, the, the, you know, the native people of this planet, in a way. You know, obviously, it's like, you have to read a lot into it to get a message out of it at all. Because it really is just sort of a, uh, there's a lot of surface pleasures here, right? And and that's that's enough. <laughs> yeah, and, I, I, and again, like, he's not taking himself too seriously. No, no, definitely not. It's not a, not, not a film like Vela, which is also very pleasurable texture, you know, but is more, you know, um, politically minded. It's definitely a solid film. I'm, I'm glad that we talked about this. <laughs> mm, I'm, I'm glad I, that I do not regret watching it yeah, at all. Me neither. So uh, would you, I could watch it again as well. I am going to watch it again as soon as I get my Blu-ray. He's a very rewatchable director in general. Yeah, because his films aren't like, you know, they're typically pretty short. <laughs> mm. And they're not like... They're uh, not demanding. No. <laughs> they're pretty pleasurable yeah. usually. Yeah. But there, there are not to say that there aren't deeper readings to make of his work too. What's your favorite Carpenter from what you've seen now? Mm, I think I need to rewatch it, but I really do love They Live. I would say that They Live or possibly, yeah, I think that I think that's probably it. My favorite Carpenter is probably Jesus. <laughs> Sorry, um, no, no, no. My favorite Carpenter film is probably still Dark Star. Mm, never, I've never seen that one. I haven't revisited it for a number of years, but I, I, I do have a really soft spot for it. Mm. I, have, I have a really soft spot for They Live, so... Alright, so uh, this film's Rotten Tomato percentage rating was a 21%, so pretty low. That's fucking insane. <laughs> what, what it's injustice. You, what would your uh, adjusted rating be? Maybe like a 79%? Mm. I think I would... 79, even an 80? I, yeah, I think I would go like at the 80, you know, there's... Uh, yeah, it's just... There's so much, there's just, the, the pleasure of this film is, is, is such that it's just so good. So there you go. And I'd say about an 80 too. But, uh, okay. So, um, yeah, so 80%. Uh, so we talk about what we're going to do next week. Next week, it's Christmas time. Yeah. And what, 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 and what have we got on the docket? So we'll be, yeah, we'll be doing The Night Before Christmas and uh, the previous year's The Princess Switch. And what non-Christmas film are we going to pair that with? Oh, yes, I forgot. Uh, Knives Out. Mm. All right, now it's time for our, our most beloved segment, Burn, Hollywood, Burn. Burn, Hollywood, Burn. That's right, Mama. Burn. Hollywood burn. 
All right, so welcome to Burn Hollywood Burn, the segment in which we have a look at the box office for both countries, have a look at some news, and then move on. Mm. So let's start with the box office. Box office hooray. Box office hooray. Box office hooray. Box office hooray. So the weekend box office for the date range spanning, in Australia at least, November 28th to December 1st in America, 29th to December 1st. The top grossing film for both countries is, on the count of three, three, two, one, Frozen, Frozen 2. 2. Wow, what a surprise. Mm. How much money did it make in good old Australia? A mere 6.5 mil mm. and change. Uh, do, you know, do you know how much it made it in the United States? Uh, significantly more than that. Mm, a mere 86 million. Wow, okay. <laughs> nice. Okay, so what uh, news item are you going to grace us with today? Well, I'm very pleased to announce that mm. uh, Samuel Goldwyn, whatever that is, mm-hmm. a distributor, I guess, to distribute Australia's top-end wedding in the US. Mm. Wow, so I can not see it. So you get to enjoy this tweet. You get to enjoy this treat, rather, mm. just as I did. Mm. You're going to tweet about it. You ready for my news item? I am. I'm pumped. Okay, Hugh, uh, beloved animation studio, Studio Ghibli, has released its films for digital purchase for the first time ever. I think you mean Studio Ghibli. Nope, I mean Studio Ghibli. Ghibli. I don't don't speak Japanese, so. Indie distributor G-Kids announced Tuesday that Studio Ghibli's films would be available in both English and Japanese languages. The suggested retail price is $20 per film. (laughs) It's a little bit. And The Wind Rises is the studio's only film that will not be available for purchase this year. Which is a shame, because it might be my favorite one of theirs. But I mean, not a shame, because I'm not going to fucking waste my money on a digital download of a film. Are you fucking kidding me? The only reason you'd ever buy Blu-rays for special features and to have a nice restoration. Buying a film digitally is such a waste of money. It's disgusting. So it's not actually a Japanese word, Mm. as you might have guessed. Uh-huh. It actually derives from the Italian noun, Ghibli, mm. based on the Libyan Arabic name for the hot desert wind of that country. All right, so moving on. The idea being the studio would blow a new wind uh. through the animation industry. Well, the anime industry, as it says. All right, so moving on. The correct pronunciation of the word that it derives from is Ghibli, or Ghibri. The way it's rendered in Japanese, for whatever reason, is as Ghibri. There you go. All right, so moving on. And given it's the name of the you company, we should respect up. it as, as they want it to be pronounced. I don't, I don't care. Um, all right. Bonus features. Bonus features, bonus, bonus features, bonus features, bonus Right, Hugh, what bonus features do you have this week? I only have one. It was Black Cat Mansion. Uh, this is another Nobu Nakagawa horror film, which I watched immediately after the recording of our last episode as part of the Japanese Film Festival. Hmm. This is definitely goofier and lighter than something like The Ghost of Yotsuya, which I talked about previously, mm. but I would recommend it very highly. Okay. 
And you can't go wrong at 69 minutes. Mm, that's, that's definitely true. Do you mind if I spoil the ending? Not at all. Okay, cool. So what I love about this is the way it's structured as a flashback within a flashback. <laughs> so the opening scene is a doctor working in a hospital late at night. Mm. It's abandoned, it's dark, and he hears these creepy footsteps approaching, right? He's like, What's, what are those creepy footsteps? And that sets his mind reminiscing back to another creepy time in his life when he moved into a haunted house with his wife. It's, right. it's Proust, but scary. That's right. So we cut to that sequence where we're with this couple in this house. Mm. And then they, um, they start experiencing the horror. There's this evil old woman who torments the wife in particular. Then they consult a priest and they discover why the house was haunted. And then we cut to another flashback to feudal times or thereabouts. And this is really the core of the film. And we see this story of this uh, evil lord who kills a samurai and rapes his wife or mother. One of, one of the two. I can't oh, quite remember. Sounds like another film that we watched together. After the wife suffers that assault from the lord, she can't live with the shame, so she decides to kill herself. But the best bit is just before she dies... She tells her cat to enact vengeance on the Lord. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, then. So then somehow, like, it doesn't really explain how the cat becomes this evil spirit woman uh. who has cat ears and can, like, take the guise of various humans and stuff. And, uh, you know, she takes, the cat takes revenge on, on the Lord and kills everyone in the mansion. Then we cut to the future, so back, or at least part way to the future, so back to the house, mm-hmm. and uh, which is the same, which was built as part of this mansion, and the spirit attacks again before they, you know, get rid of it, and it seemingly kills his wife, mm-hmm. the doctor's wife. Mm-hmm. Like, oh no, this is going to be a downer. Then it returns to the hospital that we saw at the start, with the footsteps, mm-hmm. and the footsteps are getting closer and closer, and then it's revealed that it's the wife. She didn't die after all. And the couple embrace, and then this random cute cat appears, and they pick it up and cuddle it, and it ends. Weird. Which I thought was such a great ending. Yeah. <laughs> Especially fun. because his previous film that I watched, the, the aforementioned Ghost of Yotsia, was so bleak mm. in the way it ended. So this was a, a funny response nice little, to, little to break. But I, I highly recommend any of the films that Nakagawa has made in this mode. And I'm still looking forward to watching Jigoku, which is on the Criterion channel. Mm. You know what I just purchased as part of the Criterion sale that I have not yet watched? Because it's like three hours long. Mm. Quite on. We've talked about it before. Is that three hours long? Something like that. It's a long movie. It's been a long... I remember it's an anthology film. It's been a long time since I watched it. It is... Yep, just over three hours long. But it was being shown at the same festival, but at a time I was unable to attend. The only two films I bought were both very long epics. Because the other film I bought yesterday was Yee Yee, which is almost almost three hours. Almost three hours long. So But Yang likes to make his movies pretty long. So Yeah, well this this is an hour shorter than Brighter Summer Day. Mm. It's like nothing then. Blink of an eye. What are your bonus features, sir? I have but two, one of which I only half watched, which is the Hannah, Hannah Montana, the movie, <laughs> which my roommate okay. put on our Disney Plus subscription when I was sitting here doing some work and I didn't really want to do work. So I just sat there and watched the movie with her and laughed at it with her. And Good stuff. Yeah, it's a gem of a film. 
no, there's nothing to it. Um, it, it. It has. It's a film that has no pleasure to be found in it at all, unless you're a child. So I shouldn't renew my Disney Plus subscription in order to watch it. You should not. The only other movie that I watched, I actually watched today, is a Japanese film that you've seen, a Japanese horror film, which is Ringu. Hmm. Um, which, you know, I feel like everyone knows the basic setup for Ringo. Yeah, so it's like a, a drummer gets recruited into the Liverpudlian band. Yeah. You know, they hit the big time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Project A plus, that was Project A plus. Project A plus, that was Project A. Plus. Project A plus, featuring the both of us. Project A plus, now it's time to say thanks very much. Please stay in touch Otherwise we might lose the will to fight Then we'll close down our website We're gonna go make another show Now we have to say goodbye Hope you get that dream job Maybe meet a handsome guy We pray to God that you'll find happiness